Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast, the show where we talk about mental health and wellness in the first responder community. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm your host for the program. So glad you decided to join us today for this uh, edition of the show. We have a very special guest I'll introduce in just a moment. But if you have been listening to our podcast or watching us on Facebook over the last year, we are now only on YouTube. So this video is appearing only on YouTube. But the podcast audio side is appearing on all the different channels that we have on Apple and Podbean, Spotify, all those fun audio channels. So if you are listening on one of those channels, please give us a like and a comment uh, or a review. That would be so helpful. I really appreciate it. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. We have Chief Gary Ludwig. He's recognized as a respected national fire and EMS author, leader, public speaker, an expert who has managed two award-winning metropolitan EMS systems in Memphis and St. Louis. And I think today he's in Champaign, Illinois. And Gary Ludwig joins us today from Illinois. Gary, welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Conrad. It's a true honor to be with you today. So, Gary, what uh, you've been in the fire in EMS services for quite a while. What's been your background? Yeah, um, I'm, I've been truly blessed. Uh, 43 years right now. And I started my career in St. Louis. I was born and raised in South St. Louis. And Got hired at age 18 by the city of St. Louis, and I was only two months out of high school and spent 25 years there. Also was recruited to Memphis as a deputy fire chief to run their EMS system. And uh, only back up, I retired as the chief paramedic of the St. Louis Fire Department. Um, and then uh, I was recruited down to Memphis to be a deputy fire chief with them to run their EMS system. And I was there 10 years. And then uh, I, am, I am now, uh, after I left Memphis, looking for my fifth bugle to become a fire chief. Um, I got hired by the city of Champaign, and so I'm now the fire chief here in Champaign for six years. Well, I just want to say congratulations on such a long you know, term of service in the fire community and serving your communities. And that's uh, and just the fact that you've been in it that long and healthy and well is speaks to uh, you know the, you being able to take care of yourself because I'm sure you've seen a few things. <laughs> yeah, I um. I, it is uh, when you work in urban environments uh, such as St. Louis and Memphis that usually rank high uh, on the FBI's list of violent crimes. Usually they're listed uh, third or fourth, and sometimes they swap. Sometimes Memphis is swapping with St. Louis where they're fourth or they're third. And it seemed like the two switch. And uh, yeah, when you spent 35 years in those two cities and uh, witnessed some of the things that you that I have seen, um, yes, there's there's um, there is quite a bit to tell stories of. Hmm. Going back to your early years in your training, what kind of training did you get, if any, in mental health and wellness back in the day? Nothing. Um, the, we, in our profession, really didn't provide any type of professional education or training about mental health at all back early in my day. I mean, back early in my day, we weren't even wearing gloves. We went on EMS calls uh, back in the in the early 80s and the late 70s. It wasn't until the mid 80s that we actually started wearing gloves and using PPE and protection against infectious disease. So um, I can tell you, if we weren't doing that, I can assure you that we weren't teaching and educating our professionals about mental health. It's just as of late that we're learning uh, about what is occurring and the trauma that occurs to our brains uh, as a result of some of the things we see and some of the things that we deal with. You know, uh, 
you know, it's funny is uh, I've heard people say that our, um, our, our mental health, the way we dealt with mental health back in the day, and even sometimes today is the kitchen table in the fire station hmm. where you actually sit around and you discuss things. You don't realize what you're truly doing, but you're discussing things and, and we deal with it and cope with it in that way that with the kitchen table was uh, our, uh, our counselor. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, in, in addition to that, which that was a good thing, right, the kitchen table, and it still is a good thing, but sometimes that's also involving with throwing back some uh, alcoholic beverages. Well, not necessarily the kitchen table. Well, at least in the stations I was at and the sure. department I worked in, uh, it, you know, alcohol was not a part of that in the fire mm-hmm. station. Now, I can't say that for everywhere around the country because I've heard the stories and I've actually been in some of those fire stations. I was in a fire station I visited doing some consulting work in Nebraska, and uh, and when they got done with the meeting, they threw back this large curtain, and there was the bar uh, down in the basement. So um, they asked me if I wanted to stay and have some drinks, and I said, nope, got to go. And uh, and that's just one of the things I don't believe in is drinking in the fire stations. And so, so yeah, maybe there was some alcohol as a part of some of those, but, you know, most of the times, uh, you know, we talked about things, and and uh, and sometimes in our in our way of doing with things we actually might have and it's hard for the general public to understand this we might even laughed about some of the things that that we were part of what we saw or made some jokes Mm -hmm. and uh it was a coping mechanism and a lot of the general public would be probably uh you know they would just be shocked at that but but uh, but that's just some of the ways that we dealt with things and it was that the right way i don't know you know i I, I think there's a more professional approach to how we deal with mental health in the fire and EMS service now. And maybe sometimes the kitchen table might even be detrimental, some would argue, in some cases. I know when I was doing ride-alongs for, for my previous film, we you know rolled up on a fatal overdose scene. And and there was some of that with the law enforcement officers I was with. They were you know kind of laughing and joking you know at the scene. And later, I, I, you know, asked the officer I was with, and I, and she, and she said, totally, that was a coping mechanism. That was something that I would kind of deal with this tragedy that we're seeing and experiencing. And so I kind of, you know, I understand that. And I, and I worked in the mental health field years ago in a in a psychiatric hospital, so I had the similar type of experiences, you know, with some of that. What, how have attitudes changed in the fire service toward mental health and wellness? Well, I, I can tell you when it first started appearing within our profession, um, we looked at it with raised eyebrows. And, and, and mental health is no different than anything else in the fire service. They, they say there's two things that firefighters don't like, and that's change in the way things are. And so as a result of bringing mental health into our profession, um, we were even more skeptical because, um, you know, there is a certain stigma. There's a, there's a certain, certain air about who a firefighter is, and it's, there's a stereotype of who they are, and, and it's, it's a person who's tough, that is resilient, that can face anything that comes their way. And if you fall outside that category, then you don't belong in our profession. And so, so not only did we look at it with a raised eyebrow, but we even raised our eyebrows even higher because of the skepticism that it went against the stereotype and the stigma of who we were. That was early on, Conrad. I think we have made tremendous inroads uh, and, and it has been through education of what this is all about. And the more and more our brothers and sisters in the fire service embrace this, the more and more those that came on board, um, if you didn't embrace it, um, the issue that's centered around mental health, that you you're, you would be left standing 
uh, outside the circle. And so I think we have a tremendously um, a greater amount of acceptance now uh, on mental health issues within the fire service and how to deal with those. Mm-hmm. In your personal experience, what would what did you do personally to 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 prepare yourself or to keep yourself healthy during those times of critical incidents? You know that, that's a that's a good question, and I have to think about that for a second because I got I don't want to tell war stories, but you know I've I've seen some horrible and uh, just horrific things during my time. Um, you know, when I was in St. Louis, we had I had three different fires uh, alone, just where I had six children dead at each fire. So um, the number five and six just keeps popping up in my career. I had uh, I had those three fires with six kids, children dead. There, that's eighteen children. Um, you know, I had uh, five teenagers hit a bridge abutment uh, doing about 80 miles an hour. That's what these with the speedometer were stuck on the car. All five of them were killed. Um, I, six, I had six men in the church basement of, uh, of a church uh, car, suffering carbon monoxide. You know, uh, I had uh, nine people shot, six dead in Memphis in a house. I mean, the list goes on. Um, and I'm trying to go back through my memory of, of what I what I might have done other than um, I, I don't know if I handled it well. I guess that's the best way to handle it. Uh, describe, I had a shooting at a, at a supermarket in St. Louis where I think we had 10, no, I'm sorry, we had nine shot, six wound up dying. And I'll never forget because the, the woman I'm married to now, I was dating her at the time. Uh, it was on a street called Natural Bridge in St. Louis. It was, uh, it was the brand name was National Food Store. And, uh, and uh, these robbers came in just as the store was closed and the security guard let them in and thought they were the cleaning crew. Hmm. And uh, and they were actually went, got in there to rob the place. And they lined everybody up in front of the counter, the service counter. And they lined them up face down uh, in front of the service counter and systematically started shooting them in the back and in the heads. Um, and, and, and I can remember distinctly slipping on the blood as there was that much blood on there. And you had to be careful how you walked or else you would slip and fall. Homicide actually brought us down later and took our shoe prints uh, so that he could actually start matching up shoe prints in the blood to rule out who were, um, you know, the, the responders there and then who might have been the shoe prints of those that were responsible for that. So where I'm going with my story is uh, I can, I'll never forget the next day, the woman I was dating, who is now my wife, it was the next day and I'm laying in the, on, a, on a lake in a, on these floaties with her. And I'm telling you, Conrad, I'll never forget is like someone took a hammer and hit me in the head. And it's just like a shock. Like I said, do you know what I saw yesterday, what I dealt with? And I couldn't stop talking about it. Couldn't stop talking about it. I had um, another incident in St. Louis on, uh, I think it was on Reber Place. Um, and I think it was a 4900 block of Reber Place that uh, this woman shot her three little girls in the head. Uh, one was one, three, five, and seven. And, uh, and for the mere fact, she told our dispatcher that she was just tired of taking care of them. And they were all scattered about the apartment. And, and I'll never forget looking at that one little girl with her blonde hair, and she looked exactly like my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I didn't deal with that well, but we didn't have any mechanism for dealing with it. And so back then, I just had to deal with it. So when you ask me the question, how do you deal with it? I, n- nobody educated me. Nobody dealt, Nobody taught me. These are the issues you need to look for. These are the things that you might experience. These are the things that you need to get help for. And so when you asked me how I dealt with that, I had a struggle with answering that question because I don't think I did 
deal with it I, because you just you just you just continue to exist you continue to live after that what and, do you uh, wish, what do you what do you do, do, do your people experience now in training that you wish you would have had back then peer counseling um I, i'll tell you when i was in memphis we had an eap program employee assistance program and we had counselors and it was a contractual thing with the city same thing with st louis but my my firefighter paramedics would come back to me and tell me I went to I went to peer I went to the EAP program, and I had the counselor crying. Mm. By the time I got done, they were crying, and we began to realize that that the things that we see and the things that we're part of, that the people who are involved in normal counseling, they're not prepared to deal with us. Mm. Who is prepared to deal with us is our peer counselors, our fellow firefighters who have been trained to be able to come in and have an intervention with us and deal with us. And it seems, and we have a program here at the Champaign Fire Department, one of my lieutenants put it together and um, he went to Chicago, studied what doing in Chicago. He wrote it with the battalion chief up there that started that program. He's worked with the, uh, the individual that runs the program and at the FDNY, the New York Fire Department. Uh, he dealt with a, a, a chief officer out of, I think Miami, on their program and he learned all that and he came back here and he set up this program here at the Champaign Fire Department. And we have multiple people, multiple firefighters in our department that are trained as peer counselors. And, um, and so as a result of that, um, it is people that understand what I've seen, what I've been a part of, what I've had to deal with and the things that I'm gonna experience and the things I'm gonna have to deal with after the event, that they've been there and done that and they're trained to teach me how to get through that. And uh, I, I, you know, obviously it's an anonymous program, so I'm never told who reaches out to them. I'm never told what happens, but I had uh, an opportunity to watch firsthand how they responded to what an event. I had an employee sitting in my office, uh, and unfortunately I had to um, remove him from a testing process because he was caught cheating. And I had the union in here, and, and after we were all done, the union left, and he stayed in the seat across from me. And he said to me, my wife is worried about me because I'm thinking about offing myself. Hmm. And I said, I had to confirm, what did you just say? He says, I'm thinking about killing myself. I says, you stay right where you're at. And I immediately activated our peer team and they were here. Oh my gosh, uh, Conrad, uh, I would say within 10 minutes, the first person arrived, um, they swept in. They dealt with that issue. They did an intervention. They professionally handled that, got him the help he needed to get through. And it's not always, as you can, as I just described, some traumatic event on a scene somewhere where it's a death or something else that horrific has happened. That was a tremendous amount of embarrassment for him to the department that he was caught cheating, had it removed from the test. That's the stress that he was dealing with that day. And it might be coupled upon something he dealt with the day before, maybe a death or some other horrific event. And, you know, it, it's been described to me, and I'm sorry for rambling on, but it's been described to me as filling up the glass. That it might not be one event uh, as you put water in the glass, but eventually you keep adding water into that glass, and guess what happens? It overflows. So that might have been the trigger event for him, but my peer counselors, my peer team swept in here, um, did an immediate intervention with him, got the help he needed. Within a day or two, he is back on the job and, and producing as well as he was before. He was an exemplary employee. He just made a wrong decision. What in, in your experience is a kind of creates a successful peer program? What, what are the components that is, is needed for a successful program? 
Well, obviously training, I think, is the, is the main issue that a peer program has, has to have. You just can't have someone who is a peer that is also a firefighter. They also have to be trained to look for certain things. And I'm not a peer counselor, so I might not be given the right answers in this particular case, but I would think training is the most paramount thing you need to be a peer counselor. And you need to be able to understand what are the issues that the person who is distressed what you're dealing with, what are the remedies that you can address for them? Do they, you need to get, and I'm sorry if you're hearing the tones go off. That's okay. um, if, um, if, you know, if they need a higher level of beyond our peer counselors, if they need a professional uh, counselor, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they need to be able to recognize what are those needs are and be able to help that individual get the needs that, that, that will help them. So the past year, has been an especially challenging year for all first responders and not, I mean, also including, you know, fire and EMS services. Um, and, and you were the president of the IFC during a portion of last year. Anyway, what was your main priority as president of that organization? What was, what was your focus and did mental wellness health have anything to do with that? Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, being the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs uh, was one of the highlights and one of the honors of my career. And um, and I, I must confess to you that we were dealing with so much. It's sure. indescribable of all what we were dealing with uh, at the national level. Uh, it was 14, 16, 18 hour days for myself. And, uh, you know, I'm not alone. There was a members of the IFC staff that were putting in that same type of devoted time. And uh, but one of our biggest focuses early on, Conrad, was the PPE. We could, you know, the, the fire, the supply chain was not there to provide the PPE for our firefighters and the stresses that came with that, that you're doing, you know, there was such a stigma that people are going to die if you get the COVID. And, and unfortunately, as of we speak, we've lost over 350, Amer 350,000 Americans so far. So yeah, you are going to die. There's about, you know, about a 1%, a little less than 1% chance that if you contract it, you know, that it may be fatal. Now we've, we understand some of the better treatment modalities now, but at the same time, you know, today there was a record 4,000 people, 3,600 people I saw this morning that died yesterday. Hmm. We've lost over 130 firefighters and EMS providers to this disease so far in the, in the line of duty. Um, so I, it is, there's a lump in my throat and in my stomach every time that you might have heard the bell just go off here that they're going on a medical call and the dispatcher announces that the person has COVID symptoms or is COVID positive. And that means my professionals, my firefighters are walking into that environment. And back then early in the early days, they didn't have the proper PE. They did here, but in other places around the country, they did not. And we had supply chain. So that was my biggest focus back then was to get the proper PE, the proper funding to these fire departments that had to buy. Their budgets were deficit, they were decimated as a result of overtime and quarantining firefighters. In fact, firefighters that had been infected, um, the supplies, extra supplies they had to buy, disinfectant for the stations, the extra supplies, even for, um, for as we bought here in Champaign, electrostatic sprayers, sprayers so we could, we could actually clean our fire stations and our apparatus every day. But that was a lot of my focus back then. And then um, 
one of the things that we dealt with was we dealt with the stresses of this. And so we did some webinars specifically on mental health and the stresses of working in this type of environment and the things that you might be able to see and recognize and the things that you might have to deal with. And so, so, uh, so we did not ignore uh, the mental health issue, but our main focus early on was getting the proper PPE for our firefighters. This, what was coming out of the strategic national stockpile was not going to fire departments. It was going to hospitals and other places like that. And so it was a fight just to make sure that we got our people protected. We were the warriors at the tip of the spear. And when you see the work that was being done in the hospitals on TV, there's those patients got there somehow and how they got there was in fire department ambulances. Right. I know just in our community here in Emmitsburg, and you're familiar with our small town here, you know, I, I'm friends with a lot of the people in the fire and EMS services here. And, you know, we had a neighbor who had, had contracted COVID and the ambulance showed up a couple of times, you know, to pick him up. And, you know, it was every time it was, you know, scrambling to put on their PPEs and, you know, you know, kind of you know, wearing things they're not usually typical having to wear and having different protocols of going into the home, the home and, and just, I can imagine how those stresses would add up. And, oh, go ahead. Fear perhaps when those tones do go off, the, the, the fear that may come over you as, as you hear those things go off. What, I mean, how do you deal with that as a firefighter or, or EMT? Or well, I, I will tell you, firefighters are very resilient. EMS providers are very resilient. Um, I've never, as I like to say, I've never heard one of our firefighters or EMS provider get on the radio when they're on some scene somewhere and get on the radio and say, you know what, this call is a little too tough. We're just returning to quarters. We've always dealt with the issue. We deal with the issue in front of us. We're problem solvers. We're decision makers. Whatever we are confronted with, we will find the solution and we will fix it and we'll go back to our quarters. But we don't leave until we have resolved the issue. And then the challenge is after they come back. Um, thinking about it, thinking that they're taking something home to their families. Um, you know, they might be, have gotten infected and we can't see it. It's not like it's a stain, a purple stain on your arm or, or that all of a sudden, you know, something like a turkey that's done in the oven where the little popper pops out that you have something. You know, you don't know if, if you're infected until maybe you start showing some signs and symptoms. You don't know if you're contagious and you think, did I take this home to my family? That, that I, you know, and I, I, we've had some firefighters here who have become infected. And uh, there was one firefighter that was that did not know he was contagious until the symptoms showed up. And he was so worried he went over to see his mom and he had hugged her. And, you know, his mom was elderly and those, you know, those that are elderly don't do well with COVID. And so he was so much not worried about himself, but his mother. Those are the stresses that we're seeing among our firefighters right now. And uh, not only about themselves, but did they take it home to their family? Did they infect their children? Did they infect their, their mother or their father? I just had a firefighter here who uh, lost his mother and his father to COVID within weeks of each other. Wow. Um, and they were at an assisted living facility. And so, you know, the, the, the stresses then, think about him then having to go out on COVID calls. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those things factor into this. And so... These are all things that, that we have to educate our firefighters about. But the important thing is we did early on was make sure and fight for their PPE to get the proper funding and fight that make sure these states were providing PPE to our firefighters. I, unfortunately, I was talking to fire chiefs all over the country and some were actually buying raincoats, ponchos. One even bought trash can liners to, to try to protect their people. So at least they were, you know, cause we didn't know much about the disease back then. Mm-hmm. 
And so is it airborne? Does it stay? We were hearing it stays in the air for two to three hours after someone breathes and just all the stories that were going on and trying to deconflict the information that was coming out. But uh, our main focus early on was to fight for the PPE for our fighters, firefighters and protect those that are at the tip of the spear. How did your going through a year like we did, you know, not only as a fire chief in your local community, but as a leader for the national or the international fire chiefs, how did your leadership change or shift? My personal leadership? Right. I don't, th I don't think my personal leadership changed because I, am, I have a philosophy of servant leadership. Um, and that is that I serve others before myself. I learned a long time ago that the higher you move up within the ranks of the fire service, that it is no longer about you, it is about others. And I preach continually about the fact that I'm at the bottom of the organizational chart. And my firefighters are at the top of that organizational chart. Um, they are the ones that I should be serving because I am not always the one going out on the calls. I might have to go out on the big fires or some other type of event, but they're responding every day. So it's my job, my purpose to make sure that they have all the tools, the education and the resources they need to be able to do their job efficiently and effectively. And it didn't change when I became the IFC president. My job was to serve our members and to serve the fire service. We have over 13,000 fire chiefs that are members of our association. And so it was so important that I, that I serve them and make sure by either dealing with Congress or dealing with, with people at the White House or dealing as we did with people at the Department of Homeland Security or when I dealt with the FEMA administrator, that I'm serving not myself, but serving the fire service and serving our members to make sure that I can get the tools and the resources and all the things they need to be able to run their fire departments. You know, in leadership, sometimes it can be a lonely position. So how do you, how do you stay connected to your members or the people that you're leading and to be aware of what's going on, especially when it relates to mental health and wellness? So, yeah, one of the things that, um, that I am a student of, even after 43 years, is continuing to still try to learn. I'm a student of this profession. And so uh, I talk to my peers all the time. I, I had a great conversation with a friend of mine who's the fire chief down in Rogers, Arkansas, just a few hours ago, Tom Jenkins. We, we sat on the phone and, and talked for an hour about all kinds of different things. And, uh, and so I have a lot of those phone calls. I talked to a friend who's a fire chief outside Chicago yesterday. We caught up and talked about a lot of different things. But I'm also a student. I continually read what happens in our profession. I continually actually you know, look at websites I actually have my Google alert system set up. So anytime the word fire chief appears in any type of news article or any TV story or in any type of TV or news story or television report, that I actually get an email drop once a day with all the links to those stories. And uh, I will go through those. And if anything looks interesting, I'll read about those. So I continually stay informed. I continually talk to the, the professions, professionals within our profession. Um, you have to stay engaged. A, a leader that goes into an ivory tower and retracts there uh, certainly does not exert any type of leadership whatsoever, or exhibit any type of leadership. And so uh, it is so important. I do try to stay in touch uh, with all those in our profession nationally. Were you, as a, as the president of the International Fire Chiefs, were you also kind of over the, 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 fight, the wildland fire fighters out in the West? And how has that those in, how have those incidents really impacted the fire service? 
So I'm so as the yeah as the president, I'm not over them. Uh, I just want to clarify the you know the the language there. Uh, I'm you know we they are members of our association. So yes, we are we actually have a, a very vibrant section of the IFC that deals with wildland fire. We actually have a wildland fire conference. Uh, we operate and administrate grants from the federal government for wildland. We have the Ready Set program. Um, I think we also have one that we administrate called Resilient Communities. We help prepare communities that are prone to wildfires. And we actually have a wildland fire committee um, that actually, again, advises and provides uh, you know, recommendations to organizations, including our board of directors. And so a lot of our, a lot of our members are actually engaged in the wildland firefighting out there. And, uh, and so we, we, again, we communicate with them continually. We provide support where we can. And then as a result of, I mean, there were challenges during the COVID of the wildland fire also. So, so imagine, you know, you you got a base camp of all these firefighters that are doing wildland firefighting. Well, you got to practice the social distancing. You have to have the PPE, and, you know, the food distribution. I mean, all those things, you could all of a sudden, you, you don't want to infect four or 500 firefighters that are at a base camp. And you got nobody to fight the fire. So, um, so we actually, part of our coronavirus task force that I put together, chaired by Chief John Sinclair out of uh, Kittitas uh, Valley, Washington State there. John um, was uh, one of the things they started addressing and started bringing people into our coronavirus task force that was making recommendations was also wildland fires. And then we also dealt with the Conrad also with the hurricanes. If you remember, we had the hurricane right, that right. hit down south. In some uh, places you know, over and over again. Back oh my back. God. Louisiana got hit, I think, what, four or five times with right. the hurricane? So th think about, again, like what happened during Katrina where they sheltered thousands and thousands of people inside, you know, the, the dome there, the football stadium. The, is it the Superdome? I think it's called yeah, the Superdome Super in New, yeah. New Orleans. You know, think about that during a COVID environment. Hmm. So, again, all those recommendations and all those things had to be put together because you just can't shelter people together during a COVID type of times where there's a wildland fire or hurricane. And so we try to provide recommendations and best practices to our chiefs on how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with leaders in local communities, maybe a smaller departments who still have kind of the old school mentality of, you know, that, that kind of a kind of cliche statement now, suck it up buttercup. You know, how do you deal with a leader like that? Oh, well, uh, so my experience in dealing with individuals like that is um, eventually you may get through to them uh, or eventually they are, you just realize you're never going to get through them. And I, you know, I, I, it is frustrating when people don't have an open mind and it goes back to my statement earlier that there's two things firefighters don't like, and that's change in the way things are. And uh, unfortunately we have individuals that, that stands fast and they will not change. Um, and you know, it's, and I guess I, the best analogy I give is back in the day when we had horse-drawn apparatus and all of a sudden they came out and said, Hey, we got this new fangled thing. It's motorized apparatus, the fire apparatus. And, uh, we want you to get rid of the horses and put them motor, motorized fire apparatus in the station. And, and I got to tell you, if you go back and look at history books, Conrad, uh, there was tremendous resistance to that. They even did studies to show that the horses were faster than the motorized apparatus. And we don't need the motorized apparatus. And because the firefighters had a relationship with their horses, mm -hmm. uh, they even had funerals for the horses, the fire department horses when they died in some cases. But eventually those individuals, net thinking, they retired, they moved on. Um, I hate to say the word, they died out. 
Uh, and eventually, you know, we, we went to the point where fire apparatus motorized is now an accepted practice, you know, in the fire service. And if we were to go back to horses, people would think we were crazy. And so that's where we're at now. We're in a transition period. And I think we're at the end, we're towards the end of that transition period when it comes to mental health. We still may have some individuals who are resistant to that, but eventually they will move on. They will retire, um, you know, and as we all do, we will eventually die out. And mental services and the fire service will be a, a staple of what we do and how we take care of our employees. Because our employees are the are the, our most valuable commodity, if you want to use it, that we have. We can have the best fire trucks and the best ladders and the best hose and the best AEDs, the best monitor defibrillators, but unless we have the best people operating those, those things are nothing but a rock. Hmm. And so what needs to happen at the academy level as far as mental health and wellness? It needs to be part of every curriculum. It needs to be part of the education. It needs to be a part of, uh, as we've talked before, the education. And uh, so if, if, if an academy does not have that as part of their curriculum, I would strongly urge they put mental health on the curriculum, educate firefighters about the mental health issues within the fire service and the resources that are available to you uh, in order to deal with some of the issues that if you are experiencing challenges or if you think you might experience challenges or you just dealt with a horrific event, that those resources are available to you. So uh, what would you say to those, for those those departments who have leaders who are kind of old school and there's younger members who, what would you say to encourage them to lead up? How do you lead up? And, and I'm, I'm saying, how do you affect change to leadership that's above you? The, um, so I've seen it done several different ways. Persistence is one. Uh, if you try, as I say, if you try once and you fail, um, you, you just have to continue. I'm trying to think of what that saying is. If you fail, anyway, try, try, try again. Mm -hmm. uh, education has got to be there. Um, and, I, you know, I've seen some really um, innovative ways of dealing with that. Um, and it wasn't necessarily mental health, but this model template may work. So uh, we had a, a chief officer in, in Memphis that just hated EMS. He just, you know, he was, he did everything he could to derail the program and make things bad. And, um, and so the union actually took him to an EMS conference. They paid for him to go. They took him there uh, so that maybe he can learn and educate himself about some of the issues of why EMS is so important. And probably the, the biggest thing we do, in the, it is the biggest thing we do in the fire services, provide emergency medical services. And so um, I think it opened his eyes a little bit. I think, it, you know, the education, the classes he sat in, the things that he was a part of, he understood more. Because in the absence of the information, he was ignorant. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. He was, you know, was just ignorant of the information is what it was. And so the same thing, the same template would apply to a, a fire chief that is resistant to this. That, you know, going in and talking to him in his office may not win the day, but maybe taking him to a conference, conference and letting him sit into some of his classes. Maybe listen, letting him listen to the stories of individuals and what they've dealt with and how you know, the programs that they, they uh, were a part of helped them, that maybe his eyes or her eyes would be open and uh, they would be open to the idea of bringing peer support or other types of programs into their department. That's the best advice I can give. What do you think is the future for the fire service? 
in mental health or overall? Overall, what what are the biggest challenges? What you know, where where's it heading? I uh, one of the things that I continually hear um, that I don't think is ever going to go away is budget money, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I don't know of any fire department, or not the federal government, where we can print our money. Uh, we rely on tax revenue, and this COVID and the economic impact that we've seen in our communities has actually been just uh, devastating to fire departments. The IFC did a survey and we project there's about a $16 billion hit to the fire service overall with the loss of tax revenue. When when people aren't going out to restaurants, when they're not staying in hotels, um, that revenue is lost in taxes. And they're not going to go out to that restaurant when we lift this and go eat two meals. Uh, there's, there's no way we're recapturing that. They're not going to go to a hotel and travel and stay there extra time. They, they're still going to go a week and and you know come back home. So the economic impact has been horrendous. And so uh, those are things that I think um, that are going to really impact the fire service going forward. We got we to get out of this hole somehow. And even after after the hole, um, we have or we are always challenged with the new technologies that are coming out and the new things, the new equipment that is available to us. Costs escalate. And as a result of that, we are challenged as fire chiefs to make sure we have the proper equipment, the latest and greatest equipment, the latest generation equipment that they haven't gone past their life cycle to supply our firefighters to keep them safe and protect and be able to serve the communities. That's one of the biggest challenges I have. Now, I will give you one of my predictions for the future, Conrad. I predict that uh, the, the firefighter of the future that is born today on January the 7th, 2021, so in 21 years, that firefighter will be, uh, it will probably be the year 21 or 20, yeah, 2042. That sounds a long way away, don't it? But they're only going to be 21 years old. That is if they get hired right away. I predict that the technologies that they will see uh, will be unbelievable. And I predict they will never drive a fire truck. That I believe that we will have autonomous driving fire trucks by that point. Uh, and they will be sitting in this cab and they'll be looking at display maps and looking at other type of data that's coming into them as they're responding to the call, looking at it, maybe even a drone that was dispatched ahead of time that's sending them real signals back with what the scene looks like so they can do some pre-planning before they arrive. So the technologies that we're going to see in the future and continue to develop are just going to be amazing. And, you know, Moore's law is certainly applicable when it comes to the fire service. And, uh, and so, um, the things that we will see, and so those that that remain stagnant, as I like to say, that they're in a rut. The only difference between a rut and the grave is the is the dimensions. And so you must con- continually be advancing your department. You must continue to look forward to what are the changes, embrace those changes, and see how they can be adapted to your department. Mm-hmm. What would you want to say to the general general public about firefighters and paramedics and first responders in general? What would you say? Uh, to encourage the public to support or to uh, to be, you know, to, to really lift up uh, our firefighters and EMS people? Well, um, I would just say continue to do what you're doing. Uh, the fire service is one of the most respected uh, professions there is. The firefighters, the firefighter themselves is one of the most respected professions there is. And, um, I, you know, I, the, we enjoy such loyalty and support from our people in our communities. And I just would ask that you continue to do that. You know, I, I, it brings joy to me uh, every Christmas, as we, it even happened this Christmas, the people that bring cookies and food and the other things here to the firefighters here at the station. 
and, and all my stations. Uh, and it just, you know, the love and support that we get from our communities is, uh, is overwhelming. And people are deeply appreciative for what we do and the sacrifices that we make. We're away from our families for 24 hours at a time. You know, in many cases, we, we risk our lives. Just getting on the fire truck and responding through a red light, going red light and siren, going through an intersection against the traffic with a red light is, is an inherent risk. Plus the other things that we deal with, infectious disease and all the other issues that surround fighting a fire. So we make sacrifices, but we, we don't look for those that prop us up. We do our jobs because we love what we do. We love being able, being able to make a difference and, and be able to help individuals who are in their times of distress. And so, and we, and we get that love back from people. And so I would just ask, continue to provide that love and continue to provide that, that, that show of support that you give us. We're so deeply appreciative for it. You know, I've said over the last year and in working with first responders around the country that, uh, you know, here in Emmitsburg, we have a mostly volunteer fire station and, and the siren goes off and they respond. And, and I have the privilege of having access to the app where I can see what's going on. And this thing goes off at three in the morning, like it did just the other night, you know, and these volunteers are hopping out of bed and they're going to the station and responding. And those are the kind of people that we want to be healthy. We need to be healthy. Because you know, when I pick up the phone and call 911 for my emergency, I really hope that those responding are healthy. And so if there's anything that I can do as a citizen to, to help make a difference, then I should be doing that. And, and here in our Emmitsburg community, it's, you know, they're raising money all the time for new apparatus and new equipment. And, and I can be a part of that. And I think we should encourage all our citizens to be a part of that type of an experience. Absolutely. And, and I, I hope not, but it may benefit you one day. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. You want to make sure that when you call 911, Conrad, that that apparatus starts and they have the right equipment that they have to respond to your house. So, you know, look at it in a selfish way. It may benefit you one day, but it also helps your neighbors and those that live in your community. You know, I, I had a chuckle when you said that sirens went off because I'll never forget spending one of my first nights there at the National Fire Academy back in the late 80s. And uh, it was a cool fall night and I had the window open. And that siren went off in that fire station a mile away. I'm like, jumped out of bed. I go, what the heck is that? <laughs> and uh, coming from municipal departments like myself, you know, I'd never, I didn't know they had sirens on top of fire stations and I didn't know what the heck it was. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and it was explained to me the next morning that that was the siren on top of the fire station that they got a call. And uh, so that was, I had a chuckle when you said that. But, uh, you know, you also said something that I, that I want to hit on too when we talk about. Uh, you know, mental issues and resiliency and that sort of stuff. Staying fit is important. Mm -hmm. and, and firefighters, you know, they try to stay fit. They work out all the time. I know my firefighters here, we have gyms in every one of our fire stations. And one of the things that we do is we promote, you know, physical fitness. And so um, that also helps when you get the endorphins flowing through your brain. And, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but you know, I read enough to know just enough to be dangerous. But when you get those endorphins flowing through your brain, that certainly can help you deal with some of the issues that you might've seen or dealt with during your career. Yeah. Well, Chief Ludwig, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your insight and, uh, your service to the communities where you serve at and and to the national community of, of fire chiefs i really appreciate that do you have any final thoughts about mental health and wellness as it relates to fire in the ems community i really don't but uh, i you know i just want to say this uh, i am so honored uh, to serve in this profession 
I know the caliber of individuals that provide fire and EMS in this country. I know who they are. I've seen, you know, you can look into their souls and see who they are and what they're about. I've watched them on scenes perform. You know, they're walking, you know, into someone's home at three o'clock in the morning that they've never met before. And they're there to do the most they can for them at such a critical time in that person's life. That may be the worst day on someone of, of their life. And so it is such a such a profound honor for me to serve with all those individuals. And that's the caliber who performs fire to EMS in this country. And so uh, those that are watching this or listening to this, uh, just remember that person that walks into your home potentially at three o'clock in the morning, they're there to do the most good at that particular time. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time and thank you for your service. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you today. You have been listening to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on our social media sites at PTSD911Movie on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Today's show has been brought to you by PTSD911, the documentary film that will raise awareness, smash the stigma of asking for help, and inspire change in agencies around the country. We are looking for people who want to help us tell this story. If you are passionate about the first responder community, please make a tax-deductible donation toward the production of our film. Visit ptsd911movie.com, click on the Support This Film button, and make a donation. We're so grateful for everyone who's joined with us to help us make this film a reality. We can't do it without your support. Thank you. And we would love to have your feedback on this show. So please smash the subscribe button and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That really means a lot and it helps more people discover the show. My name is Conrad Weaver and we'll see you next time on the First Responder Leadership Podcast.